0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode we will be talking with Philip Rathgeb. Philip is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Constance. During the winter term of 2018-2019, Philip is a visiting scholar at the Harvard Center for European Studies. We spoke with Philip about his new book, Strong Government's Precarious Workers, Labor Market Policy in the Era of Liberalization. Hello, Philip. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Well, We're very excited to have you on the podcast. We have uh, your new book in front of us, Strong Government's Precarious Workers, Labor Market Policy in the Era of Liberalization. I guess one of the first questions I would ask uh, for the the listening audience, if you could describe, uh, what's your definition of precarious workers?
1: Um, The precarious or the new precarious essentially emerged from the substitution of the long-term employment relationship in favor of temporary atypical contracts on the one hand and unemployment on the other. So you could say it is essentially a product of the end of full employment Uh, since the late 1970s and the subsequent deregulation of labor markets in the interest of job creation at the margins, so both in the U.S. as well as in Europe. And the result of this being that um, for a growing number of workers employment has turned less steady, less secure, and less embedded in social protection. So we may think of, you know, um, zero-hour contracts, uh, quasi-freelancing, dependent self-employment and the like, that share this um, these characteristics. And um, when we think about this class of people, so who are the new precarious, um, the literature essentially identifies three groups of workers in particular, that face a higher probability of ending up in a precarious labor market situation. So the first group is the low skilled or more aptly people with skills that are no longer needed, um, which as a result face greater unemployment risks, and therefore tighter competition of the labor market, which is detrimental to their market power and their employment situation. Secondly, I think it is important to bear in mind that precarity also has a gender dimension at the expense of women. So especially when women are single parents, they're often pushed into shorter working hours in order to reconcile work and family life. And the third group I would highlight is the young, in the sense that they, enter the primary labor market at a time of weak labor demands and at a time where employment on the margins is deregulated, yeah? So as a result, they are also more likely to um, have uh, atypical temporary contracts. And, but at the same time, it is um, important to bear in mind that labor market policy plays an important role in mediating precarity. In a sense, labor market policy can extend job security regulations um, to atypical contracts and thereby impede the growth of precarity. It can also extend social protections and thereby also um, provide um, social protection in the event of unemployment. And it can also extend access to training and thereby facilitate re-employment. And the principal objective of my book was to understand how political actors respond so this emergence of new precarious workers because they face the costs of growing flexibility on contemporary labor markets.
0: So yeah so in your book you focused uh, specifically on Austria, Denmark and Sweden and the central question that your book uh, addresses is why do some European welfare states protect unemployed and, and atypically employed workers, outsiders or, or precarious workers better than others? from economic uncertainty? What did you find in your research?
1: In a nutshell, I would say um, that the argument is that some countries have stronger governments that are able to exclude trade unions, which is a recipe for more precarity. Other countries, by contrast, have weaker governments that need trade unions in policymaking, which is a recipe for less precarity. Maybe let me elaborate on this argument a little more. Um, Previous contributions pointed they looked at either producer groups or political parties. In a the sense, they looked at how employers and unions they work together to shape um, public policy, or they look at how political parties respond to a changing electorate in order to ensure re-election. But what I found in, in this book was what matters is the interaction. Because there are moments in time conditions where it is producer groups, um, especially unions that drive policy, but there are also conditions under which it is parties. And opening up the analytical space in this way allowed me to realize that political parties uh, no longer make a big difference in the sense that parties of the right, as well as the left, pursue policies that create more precarity in order to stimulate job creation, in order to get um, people on the margins into the labor market. And understanding this choice requires um, taking into account the capitalist context in which parties are embedded the monetarism, globalization, unemployment, austerity, and the like um, have this impact that um, increased inequality and flexibility become dominant policy instruments available to governments um, in searching for ways to uh, provide employment growth. And this capitalist context, as a result, creates opportunities for employers to push governments in their preferred direction. But trade unions, by contrast, especially when they're inclusively organized, they oppose precarity because they want to undermine the flexible low-wage competition that comes with a growing number of of precarious workers. What turned out into what started off as a general examination of the reasons behind diverse policy choices, turned into an investigation about the conditions under which these parties or trade unions that drive policy. And what I found what was was what helped to understand the variation is that when governments are strong, as in Sweden for example, they don't need trade unions to de- deliver policy outcomes. In other words, if you have a united parliamentary majority, you can get things done without paying particular attention to trade unions. Whereas when you have a weak government, as in Austria for example, you need organized interests in order to get a consensus. So essentially, in the book, I found two sources of this kind of weakness. One is, um, if you're internally divided, you cannot come to an issue-specific agreement, you may find it expedient to delegate policies you know, to producer groups, to employers, unions, state, uh, the, and the state coming to a bargaining table and finding a, a solution to a certain policy problem. Or another source of weakness can be, if you are a minority government, and you don't get a parliamentary support for your policy, it can be very helpful to get the unions on board because then the government can say, look, the trade unions, they support our policy, so it is hard for you to legitimize a policy that has the consent of trade unions. So this is essentially what I found um, and what helped to understand this variation, that strong governments are more... um, are more attuned to the uh, less attuned to the demands of unions, whereas weak government are more attuned to the demands of unions because they need them for consensus mobilization.
0: It's a it's a <laughs> it's fascinating, it's a it's a counterintuitive uh, result. It's a, it's a surprising result when I looked at uh, your research that you would think, you know, if you if you are among one of the precarious workers, that you would look to Denmark or Sweden, which are you know, worker havens or, or that they have a really strong welfare state, but when your research has found that it's a weaker government like Austria would be a better place if you were in the, in the precariat. So there is a myth, you had mentioned unions, there is a myth that uh, unions don't care about precarious workers, and what did you find in your research?
1: So the myth as you just called it essentially originated from the observation that trade unions lose members, and the remaining members they have are uh, usually in standard employment contracts or what is often called labor market insiders that they are part of the core they are incorporated in collective bargaining job security and social protection so the intuition of this myth is well if those are their members they might well you know prioritize a clientelist approach in saying we care about our members they are insiders and we don't care about carers workers that are outsiders and I found two empirical problems in this theory, and also one conceptual problem. So, empirically, um, we, we can find that there are still trade unions that, that are encompassing their membership. That is to say, that they incorporate precarious workers directly into their ranks. We may think of the Scandinavian case, for example. But there are also trade unions that are quite concentrated and centralized, and thereby give greater voice. The sectors of the economy that face precarity, yeah? so they have a high degree of labor unity within their organization. We can think of the case of Austria in this in this regard. Um, so conceptually, I think the problem of this myth is that 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 it is more about a decline in power rather than a change in preferences. So to speak, that um, they they no longer have the the, the power to. Um, opt for maximal, maximalist solutions and thereby um, found themselves in problematic situations rather than being um, displaying a preference for you know, a clientelist approach and thereby not paying particular attention to precarious workers. On the contrary, recent um, contributions highlighted that a growing amount of unions, they realized that this is nothing less than a question of their own survival because precarity gradually eats from the periphery into the core, and secondly, trade unions need broad, broader commitments to social, social solidarity in order to sustain and reinforce um, popular support.
0: So you hit a you hit a key element there that unions need to evolve because precarity their, their survival is at stake. What do you see as the next step forward? What's the next? What's the best strategy for unions right now? Uh, to incorporate more precarious workers in Europe?
1: Um, Thinking about this question um, requires taking into account the political context in which they are embedded today. And I think a core factor of this political context is the erosion, um, the demise of the political center. That is to say that both center-left parties and center-right parties they lose popular support, which reflects growing dissatisfaction in this country. the, The result of this is that both the radical left, especially in Southern Europe, or you could think of Bernie Sanders in the US, and the radical right, you can think of Northern and Eastern Europe, or Donald Trump in the US, are on the rise. Yeah, so both lines of political protest, you may say, call into question in one way or the other the liberal order of globalization. The former, the radical left um, calls it into question by, um, by criticizing and opposing um, economic competition and is more in favor of an economic protectionist approach. And the latter, the radical right, is more in favor of a cultural protectionist approach by opposing immigration, but to some extent also free trade. So this is the new environment you can think Um, in which unions are embedded. The unions, they might be tempted um, to side with the radical right against immigration because there is this idea that growing labor supply deteriorates their bargaining position vis-à-vis employees. But the problem for trade unions is um, that such a radical right agenda cannot be reconciled with their own agenda because the radical right, in the end, aims to create new ethnic divisions or American Americans saying racial divisions within the workforce. yeah, And this new racialized precarity in the end facilitates wage dumping at the expense of union power. So in my view that the role of unions, um, the challenge of unions today is to incorporate natives as much as migrants in order to undermine this labor market competition between labor market insiders and labor market outsiders. Seen in this way, they're Their challenge is to unite an ethnically diversifying labor force around the common cause of social solidarity. And I don't mean social solidarity as a moral impetus. I I really think that it's more a matter of rational choice. uh, Because low-wage competition eats itself from the periphery to the core and thereby puts... Under pressure, the prevailing uh, prevailing labour market protections of everybody, and not just um, the precarity, of the, the periphery. So. and secondly, um, by by pushing um, by pushing for broader commitments to social solidarity, they also enhance their popular support because there are, of course, um, governments that um, you know feel some distance to trade unions and try to not only um, call into question the political and economic power of trade unions, but also the moral credibility. We could see this um, recently in Italy, for example, where trade unions got portrayed as, you know, um, the voice of the labor aristocracy and not caring so much about the younger, more disenfranchised, precarious workers. And this, in the end, puts um, puts their moral credibility in um, at stake. So social solidarity, Becoming, again, a sword of justice is a matter of rational choice rather than a matter of, say, uh, you know, charity or so.
0: It's good news to hear. I hope, I hope <laughs> that the political situation in Europe and in America does move in this more rational uh, way. Um, you, you framed it as a you know, populist nativism versus working class universalism. And it sounds like working class universalism is the, is the way forward. So, so, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. We're very excited again about your new book, Strong Governments, Precarious Workers, and appreciate hearing your insights uh, and, and your research uh, on this very important topic.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, Philip. Take care.
1: Bye. Bye bye.
0: That was Philip Rathkeb, author of the new book, Strong Governments, Precarious Workers. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount on Philip's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD at the checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.